Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented by Cooper Tires, presented by the Justice Brothers, and presented by my English brother, he of DailySportsCar.com reporting fame. You might have seen his face. You might have heard his voice on WEC broadcasts, ELMS, Asian Lamas series, uh, kids' birthdays, you name it. He used to be a stripper. <laughs> Graham Goodwin, how are you, my friend? Good evening, everybody, from uh, actually a quite mild UK. Not uh, mild in terms of maybe the Floridian weather we were having, but uh, it's actually nice to be back in a cooler climate. So we had a really fun weekend sports car show last week, which we did quote live in Sebring. I don't know how many attempts it required to get through the whole thing through the uh, magic of editing. Hopefully folks did not fully realize that it it might have been five attempts. I don't know. Uh, But we had a bunch of just walk up guests and friends ranging from David Hobbs, Anthony Davidson, uh, Wayne Taylor's crazy self. Who else? I mean, it was just uh, a blast. Renny De Burr popped in. It was great fun. Uh, one of the most fun shows we've actually done. And we, we should make very clear, by the way, none of that was planned. Uh, that was literally just as, it, as people came in through the door, with the exception of Ant, who was there to take part in. Uh, I'd listened to a little bit of it, but I uh, know you've got a forthcoming uh, Marshall Pruitt podcast about the Peugeot 908 program, and that looked to me to be an absolute stonker. Yeah, that was a blast. Well, we're going to do our absolute best to try and stick to our roughly 90-minute show length. We have our usual cadre of questions spanning all manner of sports car championships. No surprise, though, that the vast majority we have received are all related to... Super Sebring, dun dun dun, and the uh, the thousand miles of Sebring on Friday with the FIA World Endurance Championship, and then followed by twelve hours of racing on Saturday with IMSA's World 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 Wonderful WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Um, where should we start? You're the man who picks the tone, tells us. Which championship each week? Where do we go, Graham Goodwin? Well, I know there's a lot of interest in the regulatory side of WEC, Aslam's LMS Echo. But let's start with IMSA. Uh, in tribute to, that was a stunning weekend uh, we just came through. Stunning week we just came through. Uh, hosted brilliantly, I thought, by the Sebring staff and by the IMSA staff. So let's go with IMSA to start with Marshall. And we're going to kick off with one of those questions you almost don't want to ask. And it's from Jerry Harding on Facebook. As a Master fan, Jerry says, this weekend was simply more of the same. Qualify up front, have something go wrong with one car, one st- car sticks around us, an unfortunate incident that are able to recover from or while setting fast laps i suppose not an easily answerable question but at one point are poles and fast laps simply not enough awesome opening question jerry and we'll also mention that we do have we do our best to do a one question one answer format just to try and keep the show flowing so uh with this jerry yeah i'm with you here i think folks have been with you on this theme for a little while now expecting the results to match the potential and this being a different thing right than what had been potential that really wasn't even being realized for far too long so now we're at a place where we can legitimately show up to an IMSA round expect the Mazdas to be there thereabouts very close to the front if not on pole 
to be very competitive in the race, and then hoping that the <laughs> the final portion of the race is completed without problem. This, to me, though, and back to your point, Jerry, it isn't enough. They know it. They feel it. The sense of dread at what took place at Sebring with both Jonathan Bomarito's solo crash wasn't a heavy crash, but it was something that set the team back, took their last remaining car out of contention. Uh, You take that, you take the battery fire, which stopped Timo Bernhard uh, on track in the number 77. And this is two races where Timo's been driving no fault of his own. And the car has caught on fire due to uh, mechanical or systems related issues. Um, it's hard to it's hard to try and drum up something really positive to offer. It's also, I, I would say, of all the things that come to mind, Jerry, it would be easy to pile on and say, what do they need to do? What do they need to change? What isn't working? This is something where they did go through a pretty big program overhaul that we know of uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, if not a little bit longer, I should say, moving to Team Yoast to run the outfit. We know that they then went through a big change during the offseason in moving to a new technical director and overall program manager from the Yoast side with Yan Lang. Uh, there have been another of other number of other upgrades. A lot of changes made yet again. And here, after 36 hours of racing so far this year, race result-wise, there's nothing to show for it. I'll just offer this, and it's not meant as an excuse, and hopefully it's not received as an excuse. They're still learning. Uh, This isn't a case of the same Yoast team that put the cars on track in 2018, uh, just continuing on unchanged into 2019. So from the folks in charge of the cars to the folks making decisions, there are a lot of new faces, a lot of new everything. That's what I took away from the weekend. Obvious frustration and disappointment for one of IMSA's most dedicated uh, supporters in Mazda. Just, you know, we all want to see every manufacturer that's truly invested in the series succeed. It's in the best interest of the series, health-wise. Mazda's ongoing struggles to deliver those quality results. I think it's coming, Jerry. Uh, I'm confident it's coming, especially when we get to some of the shorter races where reliability should not be an issue. But this is still a team that is having to learn to work together in new ways with new people making decisions, deciding how things are done. Some of those people making mistakes, right? Uh, preparation. Probably there were some things missed or not thought about. There could have been, you know, some errors here that led to the issue on Timo's car. Uh, Bomarito's mistake. He's not a big mistake guy. So when that happens, it's, you know, it doesn't help, but it's also not a big trend where you go, okay, need to cut bait with that guy. He's just a rolling disaster. So unfortunately, you know, a couple of things make, makes it look definitely like, the same broken record. I'd just say give them a couple of more races. We've got Long Beach coming up here in a little under a month. Then we've got uh, Mid Ohio coming up after that. Then there's a break for a little while. But I'd say I believe Jerry, chemistry, uh, 
figuring out some of the things that the new folks might not be doing uh, 100% correctly. Give them a couple of more rounds. And if this isn't fixed by Mid-Ohio, uh, maybe one of the ensuing rounds after that. If we're still having this conversation in June, then yeah, I'd say there probably need to be more changes. Uh, but yeah, it looks like the same broken record. I just know from the team side, these things can take some time. And it's either good right away and works right away, or it still takes a little bit longer to get there. And we're in that latter scenario. Where should we go next, Graham? Um, I'm going to break a rule with just me because actually it's a continuation on the same sort of theme. And it comes in uh, from Walter Ritchie from Facebook. A uh, question about Sebring, of course. He's a huge fan. Uh, Walter of the Team Penske Acuras. At the start of the race, six and seven were off the pace. Announcers thought it was due to how stiff the cars were set up. Was there anything Penske could have done? Were their cars set up too stiffly for a course that already punishes cars for being being too stiff? Before we get into that question, I'm just going to offer a thought here, MP, because I'd like to hear your answer to it. We will, later in the show, get into DPI and its potential future, um, potentially even at Le Mans. Uh, the point was being offered, and offered quite loudly, that there are a couple of efforts here that need to see some return on the investment being made in them, uh, in terms of big wins, in terms of championship wins, without which DPI could look very different by the end of this year, in terms of its success or otherwise. Be kind of interested in your thoughts on that one, as well as on uh, as as well as on the, the question there from Walter. Uh, maybe on the first or the first item raised here from you, Graham. I have no fear that the current count of four manufacturers, three full works teams, and or three full works efforts, and one being an independent uh, commission through Nissan. I do not foresee any of that changing going into 2020 uh, whatsoever. The Acura Team Penske program, Acura in particular, they are invested, heavily invested, uh, for many years. They are making a not just a sizable annual investment, but they have come at this program with a, we're going to be here, we're going to be here for a long time. Mazda, yeah, I'd say the, the clock ticking uh, on needing to get that win and multiple wins just to ease concerns, you know, on the corporate front. We know that's the case. We'd be lying if we said any differently, but I, I think that's coming. Again, I really am confident we're going to be talking about a Mazda win before we get into the summer or early stages of summer. Uh, I believe that program is, is, I don't know if safe is the word, but I believe that is going to be in motion for a good while, and that's only going to be secured once they start winning. Cadillac as well. Cadillac, very interesting. Uh, that While they do have some... Uh, long-standing relationships with Action Express Racing and Wayne Taylor Racing that maybe position those two outfits in a very strong long-term standpoint. They also have a very robust, the one and only robust uh, customer supply program, and I know that that helps uh, defray and offset costs to the manufacturer. So I think everything's ticking wonderfully on those three, uh, with Mazda being the one just looking for a victory to get themselves into a, a happier place on a corporate level. On the Nissan front core, seems Core Autosport seems to be happy with this arrangement so far. They're doing very well with it. So uh, barring some sort of, of strange 
uh, I would say change of heart, I would foresee that continuing on. So not really concerned heavily on any of those fronts. Uh, on the Acura's lack of pace to start the race in the rain, eh, I mean, clearly the cars were not very happy uh, in rain, you know, in that rain trim and went backwards immediately. Same with the Porsches and GTLM from pole to effectively last. Then, of course, came back to win, which is great for them. Um, if I am talking about the four uh, DPI brands, the Acuras tend to be a little more stiffly sprung in general. Penske's approach to ride control tends to be a little more controlling than uh, other teams, in, in at least in road racing. But I wouldn't put it down strictly to that. I would say it seemed like they were off on aero balance as well. Um, I'm not sure if they got the tire pressure spot on. It looked like there were a number of ways in which the cars were not ultimately performing very well. Uh, then you talk about some of the electrical issues that the pole sitting car had uh, with Dane Cameron. Um, it just was not, I mean, they just missed it. Simple as that. And yeah, what I put it down to simply over springing over <clears throat> torsion barring the car and whatnot. No, um, there's usually a, a mix of things that leads to being off. Should should say by the way, I I was aware of a bit of a bout of misreporting about the Acura woes. At least three different people in the media centre repeated back to me uh, that Penske were unable to change the data stick. The issue was not being able to change the data stick; it was the power supply for uh, the data uh, logger. I understand that was the problem with that uh, that early issue yep. uh, with Penske car. So that I'm afraid probably picked up from one or other of the broadcasts but was incorrect it was the power supply that failed to the data logger and that's why that uh, took longer than it otherwise uh, should have done on a similar kind of uh, vein with that one and uh, it's Ed Juris, one of our regular questioners. Hi, Ed. Uh, asks, what's wrong with Acura Team Penske, especially at the start of Sebring? That goes over the old ground. But asks, might Acura bring another team instead of or in addition to Penske for next season? Seems like they can run quick laps, but are out to lunch during the big races, says Ed. Yeah, again, I I would hesitate from pushing maybe too far down that path, Ed. And again, I could be wrong, but I don't see as anything being particularly wrong with Penske. Um, if we think about the Rolex 24, those were some highly competitive cars there. Uh, towards uh, I would, When I think of their program in 2018, and there was a little bit of a, a releasing of the BOP leash, uh, for a brief period, but when I think about their program in a very general sense last year uh, being new cars, they just seem to be overly restricted. And, you know, at least speaking with some of their drivers, they did not disagree. You might say, well, of course, drivers are going to blame BOP, but, you know, I'm talking real conversations with people that I know and have known for a long time. And in those, you know, uh, relationships, they're going to tell me what's real and what's not. And the, yeah, there was a general sense of, you know, held back a little more than expected. And we can only show so much as a result. The competitiveness of the program, I mean, obviously they got things wrong at Sebring. No question. End of statement. 
Do I think that they can rock up to Long Beach and dominate? Absolutely. Uh, the team is that good. The drivers are that good. The everything is that good. That chassis is phenomenal. Uh, the aero is good. The engine is super extra proven. So I would just say, you know, let's not use a bad weekend for them at Sebring as an indicator of anything being wrong, knowing again that they were extremely competitive at the Rolex 24. Uh, that's what I remember. That's what I think of with this team. So I can't wait to get to Long Beach, Graham, where I'm fairly convinced we very much, very may well have one Acura, one Cadillac, one Mazda, and the Nissan, four abreast, <laughs> breaking into turn <laughs> one to start the race. Uh, I think it is going to be a just monster of an event, and I can't imagine we're going to see any one of those brands really pulled back or uncompetitive. So by the time we get through Long Beach, Ed, I don't think we're going to be, uh, this is going to be raised. And if it is, then that would be another surprise. But Penske should be there, thereabouts, everywhere that we go. Let's run a couple of questions into one, Alex Eichmiller and uh, excuse me, Mario Valoria, uh, both on Facebook. Uh, Alex asks a question or comment. Will we ever have a dry IMSA race this year? Episode last week with different guests stopping by. So Alex is one of his favourites so far. Thank you for that. Uh, Mario says, for the second straight race, the Porsche team struggled when it rained. Drivers admitted performance deficit. Do we know why they suddenly became uncompetitive in the rain? Is it a car balance or mechanical issue? or other i can answer partly the second one mp having spoken to two or three people involved with the porsche so i, I have to say i think they're absolutely clueless as to just why that didn't go as right as it should have done not wrong but didn't go as right as it should have done they do seem to be chasing an issue with that car in um you know really wet conditions that they currently cannot um get their heads around uh, without a shadow of a doubt as for ed uh, for alex rather I think I can probably guarantee you're going to have at least one dry race, although I must admit it is rather odd to look back at Delhi Sports Cars gallery content to see rather more grey in Florida than we're, we're used to. Did you get uh, any kind of feeling, by the way, MP, about uh, what might have been going on at Porsche? I did not see anything that made me think there were crazy things going on by any means. It was baffling, though. Because if I am thinking of a vehicle of all the GTLM entries that should be a star in the rain, it is that Porsche with the mid-rear engine layout, traction aplenty, uh, and also just you know, compared to some of the longer wheelbase GTLM cars, just, again, in theory, it should be a more dynamic car responding to uh, a loss of lateral grip in the corners and also but also just better at putting power down so yeah uh not a hundred percent sure but strange very strange for sure so i uh, would also say that you know coming back to alex's question i have a bit of a complex going because it's rained more or less everywhere that i've gone this year even tests so yeah i think i might be <laughs> i'm the it's problem you, rain yes. magnet rain magnet yes so i'm actually looking to teams and series to pay me to not turn up so they can have a good race so <laughs> that's my new profit center 
A uh, couple of questions now around the the event itself. Let's start with Robin Crickman, who says, uh, it seems Sebring will host both races again next year. I think you're probably correct on that. Aside from improving the media centre, what do you think still needs improvement in terms of infrastructure? Interesting to read some comments from folks talking about need more bathrooms. Uh, we It seemed like some of the creature comforts might have been pushed to the limits with so many people. So, again, maybe this is one of the, maybe it's a strange thing to mention, but since uh, track president Wayne Estes told me that, you know, they did put somewhere between 40 and 50% extra uh, tickets uh, through the turnstiles and folks, just tons of people turning up more than ever. Uh, it seems like some of the basic things of, ah, I need to go use the loo, and here's the super crazy long line that I've never seen before. Uh, just some of those things where you go, okay, what do we need to think of in terms of a much bigger turnout, and what kind of extra amenities do we need to add, whether it's more bathrooms, more places to buy food and water, had some folks saying uh, it didn't seem like there were enough loudspeakers for the PA system in various places since. Uh, it sounds like we had more people venturing out, you know, spreading out or maybe looking to new areas to find a little bit of elbow room, places they might not have uh, thought of going out and spectating from in the past. And in some of those spots, uh, there seemed to be some things lacking. So, uh, I mean, that the ingress and egress is always going to be tough at Sebring, uh, especially with lots of folks turning up, uh, trying to, whether it's just drive in and park or go and get credentials or you name it. So, you know, some of the basics, I would say, Graham, all coming back to uh, how do we please and take care of a very significant increase in people turning up. As for the, I guess, the inside stuff, the media, the teams, and what they need and such, you know, I'm sure that they're going to receive feedback on those items, but by and large, that should all be secondary. Uh, I did have a great conversation, though, on the topic of sound in the media center yesterday with Scott Atherton, and because uh, I might have mentioned I saw him during the event and said, Please grab your laptop, go in, pick any seat in the media center while a session is on track. I, I will and, give you a story about exactly yeah, that in a moment. And yep. tr try and compose an email, try and do any creative writing. And, I, you know, I just want you to get a feel for what trying to think in a day long constant barrage of 90 to almost 100 decibels is like. And uh, he anyways, when we spoke yesterday, he was like, yeah, uh, so I was in the media center, and yeah, uh, I get it. fully understand. And I just mentioned to him, and this was, please, this was not a threat. This was just an honest statement. I said, I really, truly hope you guys come up with something better next year, because if not, I won't go. And it's because I've actually been suffering a little bit of hearing loss in my left ear. This just cropped up in the last month and a half. And it's really weird in that, I've lost a little bit of, of range uh, with hearing in my left ear, but there's also been this other thing, which is bizarre. I've lost lower range, more bassy tone in my left ear, but any of the higher pitched screaming-y type sounds, it's like someone has a megaphone blasting into my ear. 
So you can imagine with Gibson V8s revving to 8,500 RPM, Porsche 911 RSRs, and all manner of things, um, it was just an audio explosion, even with hearing protectors, even with little uh, foamy earbuds in my ears. So uh, I just mentioned to Scott, like, it's don't take this the wrong way, but I was almost dizzy and unable to, I was almost disoriented for a lot of the weekend. You can attest to that because you look, just looked over and said, well, Pruitt, you look as sad as usual. <laughs> uh, but there was actually a secondary thing where, Again, and this is not MP complaining, I'm just sharing. Uh, I truly was struggling to think, write, comprehend, you name it. Probably mostly due to this little ear issue that I've had, but I just said to Scott, I I won't put myself through that again uh, because there's something going funny with me that just made being in this outdoor barn with no soundproofing a little bit too much. I think they absolutely got it. Uh, Scott actually uh, offered in the fringes of an interview, which I hope I can actually pull out for this week's Inside the Sports Car Paddock, uh, because I forgot to send it to you for the one we've just published. Um, And in the fringes of that, he did say, yeah, uh, I was asked to come along and um, and have a listen for myself. And now I absolutely get it. It isn't a moan. It is a real issue, uh, actually concentrating. It's not not a problem for half an hour, an hour, but when it is full days and we have cars on track from what, about eight o'clock in the morning until nearly midnight, most nights. Um, and after a few hours of that, it, you're absolutely right. It's draining. The only offer I would give is I thought they did a magnificent job. Absolutely huge kudos, by the way, to Sebring International Raceways staff and what their efforts were. They were absolutely unknown territory for those kind of numbers. Uh, I would just say this um, around the paddock area. If you didn't have hospitality provided, and not all of my guys did, uh, the food outlets closed up pretty darn quickly of an evening so you know getting into the late evening it was quite difficult to get the guys fed but they were small these are small things i've zero doubt there'll be a better uh, offer in terms of the sound deadening for the media um but across the whole thing other than having maybe a midweek evening where we could get out of the circuit by five would be nice rather than 5 a.m uh, other than that and there are major challenges with that timetable i thought the the weekend the week was an extraordinary um, achievement, so, so much better than I think any of us thought they could possibly achieve. The paddock arrangement, I thought, was a triumph, um, you know, and that was by far the most challenging uh, thing in front of them. Uh, and it was pretty early doors, pretty early on in the week, where after there being maybe a little bit of guidance that this might be difficult to deliver again in 2020, I didn't hear that after Wednesday, not once. Fair enough. Where should we go next, my friend? Let's have a crack at Shay Adam. Um, who do you think is the smartest person in the Emsa Paddock who isn't already known for being a brilliant person? Obviously, we know those on the pit boxes are beyond talented. Who, uh, who are those nuts behind the wheels would be Mensa worthy? Can I make an offer on this one? Please. Um, um, 
there's always the I mean, it, it it's easier you know for the guys that perhaps you interact with and it is a name that has become far more well known uh, in recent years because of his parallel efforts to what we do on the weekend sports cars but i'm going to offer up sean heckman um and i'm going to offer up sean heckman because i think he brings something completely unique to the emissa paddock uh his genius in terms of PR, uh, his efforts on behalf of Magnus Racing, I think, have just been stellar over the years. Uh, absolutely uh, mould-breaking uh, stuff from Sean, and zero doubt that the the success that the guys have made of dealing with racers, in no small part, is down to his uh, creative talents. Um, it's always a pleasure to see somebody so understated as Sean, because he is personally very understated. Um, you know, finding a formula that works. So I'm going to give you that for starters before you get into somebody who deals with, I'm sure, either the oily or data-driven bits. I'm actually going to go for someone who is so sneaky smart that I love that aspect about him almost more than anything about the guy, anything else about the guy. And that is Action Express Racing team manager, uh, team principal guy who runs the show, Gary Nelson. And uh, I still feel bad because I have the My Racing Life and Career episode he and I captured, I don't know, last September maybe at Monterey. And I still need to get that posted here. But from Southern California, yet spent the majority of his life uh, in the deep south working for nascar teams and i think as a result most people assume he's from alabama north carolina something and maybe because he spent so much of his life in nascar and maybe has adopted i don't know it's not necessarily a southern drawl but you might you definitely don't hear southern california in his voice i think there could be some stereotypes some folks might apply to Gary. Uh, NASCAR, a little simple, doesn't speak too fast, doesn't use complicated words. Holy cow, Graham. And just in terms of a fascinating character, uh, brutally intelligent, a wonderfully streamlined way of thinking and managing and performing He's someone who just has the external shell of someone who might be written off as, oh, hey, he's good at what he does, but yeah, uh, not a lot of pages in that book. And in reality, it, it's just an absolutely fascinating, fascinating, multi, multi-edition uh, story with him of so many fascinating things with a just brutally sharp mind but someone who I think almost takes pride in presenting himself as a bit of a simple character to the public. Uh, there's a little bit of cloak and dagger about him, and I know he appreciates that and likes uh, selling selling the dummy to folks. Oh yeah, just Gary. He's good at what he does, but you know, I mean, don't don't give him you know complicated math uh, or, or or word problems because he might not get them right. No, he'd get them right. He'd get them done faster than you, and p find a very cool way to beat you with them. So 
I'd say Gary Nelson, and I cannot disagree in any way about Sean Heckman. He hates, <laughs> the best part is he hates this kind of stuff of folks heaping praise on him, saying positive things. Normally you guys... Oh, oh, that's fine. I'll just, I'll do some more. Sean, yeah. you're great. You're oh, great. The yeah. best. Uh, no, but I'm with you. Uh, he, whenever he is done in his motor racing communications PR uh, presentation career, whatever the heck it is, I hope he will be looked back upon and received as someone that not only did wonderful work that deserves praise, but shifted the ways of doing things, or at least the mindset of how things can be done uh, in PR, specifically sports car racing. But think about the fun that you see on a daily basis Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, from teams, from drivers. Hey, I want to do something a little bit out of the box. I hate that phrase. But Sean, the media barons group that he works with, they were exploding those boxes long before anyone that I can think of, at least this, uh, uh, this century in our sport. And I just hope folks are able to, at some point in time, look back and realize that Ah, he and through his work and obviously the support of John Potter and, you know, Magnus Racing and many others, but he made it okay for folks to say, oh, we can have fun. We can pull your leg a little bit. We can be cheeky. We can just be downright silly at times. And that's okay because the other stuff gets really boring. And if all you're doing is boring stuff, no one's going to hear your voice. You look at what we see today and it's seemingly driver after driver team after team trying to one-up one another uh for their voice to be heard and i just i appreciate the fact that sean's been a true leader in that capacity uh, and something that's only positively affected what we do let's move on for the last couple of uh talking points in the imsa paddock before we move on from from there there's a couple of questions carl brown from facebook and uh, where is the other I'm looking for here? It is, uh, yeah, it's from Right Turn Lover. It was good to see him at uh, at uh, the Weekend Sports meet Cars you. Live. Great to Absolutely. meet Absolutely. Um, asking around the uh, the GCD cars, the last two safety cars, and Right Turn Lover asking, um, you know, uh, whether or not the last two safety cars not pissing on the safety car uh, cost the. Uh, the Myshank Acura, the cat uh, Myshank Acura win. Um, others, uh, Carl Brown actually saying several cars stayed out, thought GTD cars could go 60 minutes on fuel. What did they hope to gain strategically by staying out? They had to make two more stops, etc., etc. It became, didn't it, not just a, a race on pace, but a race on fuel mileage. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was an interesting thought on. Uh, the the mileage front, I would definitely say, knowing the odd way in which the race played out, being just a vast lack of full-course yellows uh, for so long, my guess, and it is purely a guess, but I think there might have been a belief, all right, uh, we got one coming here late, there's probably going to be a few more. Uh, this can't say 
stay strange and green the whole time. There must be a flurry coming. So I'm wondering, Kyle, if that was the general mindset that some of the teams you mentioned might have had. Uh, is this a way where we can maybe uh, eke out an advantage and have something really positive uh, come to bear? So, again, it's a guess, but that's kind of sort of what I at least what I seem to recall at the time. Uh, certainly, I think uh, Ryan Kish, who put the questions together for us, he was uh, in the chair for the GTD coverage we had the final three hours and uh, points out the, the 44 and 29, the only three top cars to make it on one stop after the final full course yellow ran roughly one hour and seven minutes on their fuel, pitted with 53 minutes to go. It was a fascinating uh, GTD battle and came up with some, well, some amazing stats and some amazing figures for the Lamborghini Squadra Corsa guy and um, Rick Broikers uh, and Mirko uh, Bertolotti in particular, uh, they are going to be results for the ages without a, sh- a shadow of a doubt. A um, couple of questions, actually, about LMP2. Uh, we'll, we'll do that to finish this section. The uh, Derusla, a guy, in a, a, grum- a guy in a grumpy bear suit, says, after two entries and one finishing, many laps down, what's next for LMP2 and IMSA? What can they do to boost entries? Where's the entry fee? Better for most promote the Le Mans auto entry that's available um, and uh, Richard Dastardly great name there uh, offers the same kind of thoughts but also uh, re- reiterates the potential concerns about DPI that you've you've burst that one that bubble but what about P2 MP I haven't heard anything that would suggest more than two cars will be on track and if I'm talking full-time entries or even regular IMSA entries haven't heard anything about uh, more than the one entry from Performance Tech Motorsports out of Florida, the other from Pier 1 Matheson in California for the entire year. Uh, we might have something towards the end of the season, possibly, uh, if we're looking at uh, Petit Le Mans, maybe. So beyond that, I, I, I don't know of much else that might be coming. I will mention just an appreciation of press releases. Uh, our friends at PR1 Matheson did send out something this morning that said, PR1 Matheson Motorsports finishes second at 12 hours of Sebring after starting on pole. Um, I thought that was an interesting proclamation by subtraction. There's only two cars in the class. So um, it was pretty awesome to finish second there after starting on pole. Uh, I also don't know if I would mention that, hey, we finished second after starting first. But again, uh, who am I I to say? Um, Yeah, look, I think we just need to buckle in. Honestly, this is what we got. We have mentioned on a previous episode, Graham, as to why we ended up where we are with only two IMSA had they thought that they would have three or four, maybe five for the full season. Uh, Some teams were able to get the Cadillacs that they were chasing after uh, and therefore jumped out of P2. I mean, there's a few different things we could say. um, We could say led to where it is. I just don't foresee uh, anything changing in the short term whatsoever. Uh, And would just add that, you know, maybe... We'll find out if this is something that is meant to last or not. It's an obvious statement, but I think LMP2 is great. I am so happy that we have it. I wish it was more successful, but 
We're going to find out, Graham. I mean, the market's going to tell us whether we go into 2020 with DPI and P2 or IMSA needs to consolidate and say, hey, it's DPI. Now, if we want within DPI, we can nominate a pro-am division. So I'm not saying necessarily creating a fourth class by splitting DPI into two factions, just saying that if you wanted to award a separate set of points for verified pro-am lineups, uh, you know, call it the, the same thing that John Bennett and... Uh, Colin Brown did last year with their Areca P2. You know, could, could you slice that and make, you know, their Nissan a contender in a Pro-Am DPI thing? They could. You know, I'm not saying I necessarily love that idea, but regardless, if P2 is just going to be this thing on life support uh, for another year, then that's something IMPS is going to need to make the call on early, very early into the off season. We'll just mention one other thing too, and this none of this stuff is easy. Obviously, you have Performance Tech Motorsports that has spent hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands on an LMP2 car uh, and leases for engines and this and that, you name it. They have invested, spent money on a very expensive prototype. Same with PR1 Matheson. Um, they don't want to hear that those expenditures are now worthless, at least in terms of having a place to race those cars in IMSA. Um, this is all sticky stuff, Graham. It really is. So if P2 doesn't grow, these teams that were told were separating the class and you got a place and now we're going to take it away because it doesn't look like it's growing. I don't know if IMSA says, well, we'll keep doing it for you, even if it's just the two of you. Uh, I don't know if those teams have enough money to go out and buy a Cadillac or a uh, Nissan Enroque DPI, which are also available for sale. Um, None of this stuff is good unless we have another one, two, or three P2 show up. That's the only only way this gets good. Everything Mm -hmm. else is some sort of compromise and or significant financial loss. Yep, I mean, remember, you will have the addition of the Inter-Europol Ligier for two rounds this season against their current plans. Laguna Seca will see that car uh, out, the uh, Norwich City liveried uh, Ligier, as will Petit Le Mans, against, as I say, against their current plans. PR1 Matheson with their second car, potentially, we might see that one uh, that one out. But I think you're right, what you're looking for to make that class tick is fairly significant additional uh, cars out there. There is one final question, by the way, I, was, I, I should add in here. It comes from Travis Bender. Uh, MP, if you had to pick a defining moment at 12 Hours of Sebring, what would it be? Any significant storylines you feel might have got overshadowed amongst the other stories? Side note from Travis, uh, Travis that last hour was incredible to watch. Yeah, and actually I just spoke with him in the uh, new episode of The Week in IndyCar that I posted, and that was with Felipe Nazar heading out on cold tires in the number 31 uh, wheel and engineering sponsored action express racing Cadillac DPI VR. This stuff is so fun in sports cars, by the way, Graham, (laughs) you cover IndyCar and it's just the number 98 Honda Uh, in sports cars. (laughs) It's about 14 minutes to 
call out all the uh, names and whatnot. But yeah, it was Felipe and cold tires in the last you know hour and a half or so of the race uh, with a uh, Jordan Taylor set on kill in his number ten Wayne Taylor racing Cadillac already on on you know just full attack mode and. It was a very defining moment, I would say, of seeing Felipe come out, cold tires, uh, avoid getting gobbled up by Jordan, and then pulling away. And I've said this many times. This was said to Felipe in the uh, Week in IndyCar show. I've said it before. Nothing against IMSA. Nothing against Action Express. Felipe Nazar does not belong in IMSA as his full-time gig. Uh, He's just too good. I realize the way things panned out in Formula One and not having, you know, uh, full-time stuff, that this is great. I'm glad he has a job and things are good. He also has a Formula E deal, but he's where he is, and that is awesome, and I don't want him to leave IMSA, but the perfect scenario for him would be a full-time IndyCar drive where he does belong, and then to do the uh, endurance rounds with Action Express in the number 31 car. So just seeing him do his thing and be him, (laughs) I hope IndyCar team owners were watching, because if they watched that, they would have realized, oh yeah, okay, what's that guy's number? Because he needs to be over here with us getting paid to do that to uh, some pretty pretty scary talent there. So that jumped out also, and I mentioned this just briefly or a little bit, but the overall context of Porsche's win in GTLM, it's nuts. (laughs) I mean, it, it, it looks like someone attached an anchor to both cars at the start of the race in the rain. I mean, they were just dreadful. And I'm thinking they're done. I mean, you, you're not going to recover having lost that much time as Ford in particular, both of their cars just phew, straight to the front. I remember texting Mike Hull, uh, the managing director of Chip Ganassi Racing, uh, basically in the last 10 minutes of the race saying, what happened? You know, and, and I was watching, but I was still just unable to fully comprehend how what looked like just Ford utter dominance, just give him the trophy. We don't even have to finish the GTLM race. Just pull in early. We'll give it to you. It's over. And no, <laughs> freaking, uh, freaking the, the Porsche GT team ends up going from first to last to first and somehow knocked off the Fords. It was a thing of beauty. So those are the two things that will stand out for me for sure as uh, the main items from at least the IMSA portion of Super Sebring. Uh, time for you to be question master. Yes. Woohoo. I am. Uh, I love, I love the fact that I get to say now, Graham Goodwin, it's your time <laughs> to answer the Weck Aslam, Aco Elms portion of the show. Uh, all of the awesome acronyms for European sporty car racing that we have consolidated here. Courtesy of daily sports cars, Ryan, Kish, we're going to go to Matt Neidert. Matt, it was great to meet you, by the way, in the paddock. Oh, and you opened by saying it was great to meet me. Well, I appreciate it more, so take that. Uh, he says, there's so much going on. My friend uh, Warren Quarrel, who I also met, uh, and they unfortunately missed our live show with the Ford Chip Ganassi Racing team. That was a blast, by the way, Graham, and I just got the video from that from NASCAR Productions. So I'll post that along with the audio here as quickly as possible. It says, question for us, 
All indications are that the uh, WEC and IMSA double header will repeat in 2020, which I think is amazing. I'd like to suggest a change that I also think would be amazing. Move the start time of the WEC race to an hour before sunrise on Friday morning. Woo! That's right. A Bathurst-style pre-dawn race start. Sunrise at Sebring. The race will be, o- will be over by 2 p.m. or so, which will still leave enough time for IMSA qualifying in the two-hour Michelin Challenge, uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge race. The track would be cold several hours earlier than this year, um, and also allowing fans and marshals and crews and drivers all a few more hours of rest before getting back at it Saturday morning for the IMSA race. What do you think could it be done, and can you suggest it to Mr. Atherton next time you talk to him? Ooh, this is a great opening question, Matt. What do you think, Graham? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> I have to say, I think I'm right that we didn't have more than four hours sleep at all from Monday onwards. And that was principally because uh, it was a matter of getting in reliably, crossing the cold track before um, the first test sessions began, and then there were late sessions Every evening, bar one, and that bar one, uh, I'm afraid there were com- kind of commercial and uh, logistical uh, reasons why we couldn't. Uh, it was grueling for those relatively few people working that race meeting that were covering everything. Um, so, yes, in terms of the grueling aspect of it, I have never been as exhausted as I was coming home from a long haul race as I ended up being coming home from the Sebring. And that was with what was relatively speaking a rest day afterwards. So yes, from my point of view, that's a selfish point of view. I understand there are reasons why they would want the format that they had actually got. I also would say this, I don't think we necessarily needed quite as much running in the dark as we actually took for the WC race. I got the impression from conversations, and I did have them with both sides of the house, if you like, the WC house and the MZ house, that they were relatively happy with the way the timetables ran. Um, I think they could do with a tweak. I think uh, it would be good for everybody involved if midweek, Wednesday or Thursday, perhaps, uh, we all got to go home at five if that's what we wanted to do. Um, But I'd be perfectly happy to accept whatever decision comes forward. I'm certainly not in a hurry to see any of the support races taking a further trim than already did. I'm aware that at least one support race, uh, one additional support race was planned for the week that fell victim to the timetable. I think that was a correct decision. Uh, I think we could, we can certainly accommodate the two that were there. Uh, Whether or not one of those races needs to maybe race a little earlier in the week, let's wait and see. But for me, it wasn't bad. We just about, coped with it um, but you're talking to one very tired bunny let's go to our pal andrew baka who uh, says 20 years ago in 1999 the top class at sebring was a combination of wsc world sports cars lmps and gt1 cars are we heading towards a similar future for le mans right down to the three categories being mixed uh, that are high-tech prototypes, lower-tech bespoke cars, and road-derived cars. If so, will it work? So maybe a little bit of of quick background or history of what's been developing on hypercar that might lead to this kind of just bring anything. (laughs) It might be part of 2020. Who knows? 
Uh, well, yeah, I think we potentially are heading for exactly that kind of direction. Uh, it's almost a necessity. We are in extraordinary times. Now, you know, you and I and others have gone down the road of, is this just ranking competence on the part of the uh, of the rulemakers? The more I talk to people who are directly involved in the discussions, and I don't just mean the rulemakers, but the manufacturers and the teams involved in this one, the more I'm coming around to the conclusion that, look, have wrong turns been made? Yes. But what's really biting here is the current state of affairs in the automotive industry. We are in an extraordinary time. Consider this. We may be one or two rule iterations away from the internal combustion engine being the, uh, the, if you like, the outlier here. Consider that for a moment. Uh, it comes as well from a conversation with Jens Markets at Bathurst about uh, the questions about their program in the WEC with the GTE car. And Jens's offer in, you know, under some scrutiny from me was, you know, one of the other things that's happening at the moment is we're being asked to review uh, and present programs at very much later deadlines. We are in extraordinary times. Uh, I, uh, with apologies, I know it's one of our listeners, and I can't immediately recall which listener it was, but we had a great conversation about this. And my offering on it was was this. We're in a transition. It's going to be an extended transition. I'd actually like to see something I dubbed Formula X coming to the fore. Uh, lots of nonsensical, it should be this or it should be that. The reality is we don't know. So why don't we try the lot? If you're going to go down the balance of performance route, and they are, without a shadow of a doubt, then let's open that door. Let's balance as many people as want to come with cars that can perform at that level. Let's have the uh, the hypercars. Let's have the road derived the, the road car derived hypercars let's have the dpis let's have class one touring cars let's have the grandfathered current lmp1 cars let's do that for a couple of years and there should be only one proviso if you want to do it you've got to enter it in the wec that's what you've got to do that is the cost of coming to le mans it may be that you decide that uh the imsa might require um, you know, a little more reassurance in terms of the DPIs. And that's fine as well, Marshall. But if you want to do that, you know what? Your TTLM cars aren't coming. It's going to be the IMSA DPIs uh, because there is a very healthy full season scene across Europe, across the globe with the WEC and uh, increasingly across Asia. They're going to want those places. And it is fundamentally not correct for the position to be made that uh, that the, the big cars from IMSA should be getting a buy to come to Le Mans. Uh, because they're, they've got a successful formula. My one response to that would be, that's absolutely fine, guys. Where's our place on the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona for the LMP1 cars? Try that one. I love it. That's the thing I hate most about the Rolex 24, 12 Hours at Sebring, and every other IMSA round. It's that we don't have LMP1 here. And Yeah, so, yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'll throw this in just as a... Maybe a reinforcement, if that's the right way to put it. Uh, I think where we are headed, which Andrew rightly points to, of this all manner of, if it's a prototype and it doesn't have a specific P2 sticker on it, come on in, kind of hypercar <laughs> future, right? Uh, full bore prototypes, carbon fiber, the same things made by Toyota and all the specialist constructors, but to slightly different regulations and wearing 
hypercar themed bodywork. The road based true hypercars again a Koenigsegg, uh who na- you name it a Pagani uh, that has been modified for uh, racing safety and, and whatever performance level is needed plus potentially if Nouveau Gerard Nouveau uh, WEC president and the ACO uh, if they are serious about letting DPI American you know IMSA's second generation DPIs compete uh, when they arrive in 2022 and their performance levels are similar to hypercar. If that's true, I don't think that I, I think what we heard was a sure. Why not positive thing, which we've written about do in my heart of hearts. Think that they will actually say, yes, come on over green light, come and play. No, but regardless, that's what they said. So we're going to report about it. That's our job, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. um, I do think Andrew's spot on about this, that we're going to have this jumble. And in the first year of this hypercar, we're going to have legacy LMP1 non-hybrids. And it's going to be a a prototype jalopy fest. And I don't think that's a bad thing. The, would we love it to be super clean? Yes, because that's the thing most uh, we hear from so many sports car fans that they prefer clear, linear, simple, just be exactly what's in the defined box. I think we're just looking at a time that the era is telling us, Graham, that is not possible. Uh, the man- auto manufacturers who have heard about, been consulted on, and taken part in these hypercar meetings have not clamored to join in. The opposite has actually happened. We have manufacturers who have said, well, we could if you change this. And one over here saying, yeah, we could if you change that. Uh, you, What you have is a lot of manufacturers realizing, you mentioned this as well as a belief, that there are manufacturers who are looking at this, realizing ah, they're a little bit prone Right? They've announced this new formula, this new thought for the future, and it's not taking off so far. And so what would you do if you're a manufacturer trying to get the most? You'd say, yeah, I could be there, but you need to grant me this concession, or these three, and then we will probably come in, and you exploit that weakness. We think we've been seeing that taking place, all because for this time, for this era, uh, with this changing automotive world, this doesn't appear to fit exactly what manufacturers want. So as a result, as Andrew points out, we could very well have two, three, four types of prototypes sharing the track uh, in the coming years in the WC's top category. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the collapse of prototype racing in the early 1990s, whereby, you know, 94, 95, 96, uh, you know, McLaren F1 GTRs are winning, but there's also some weird lumbering heavy prototypes mixed in, some smaller boutique ones where it's like, how in the world was that not turned away from scrutineering? And why are those people still not laughing at some of the cars that were brought to compete it was, it was, that's what the times happened to be. The money wasn't there or the formula wasn't right. A variety of things conspired to having a linear LMP1. This is what it is. We've got three or four or five manufacturers, all that have bought in. This is going to be a success. We've had that. It's broken down. The next step is not something that really follows that similar traction that we had. 
So it's not a surprise to me that, yeah, it's going to be the WC appearing, Graham, to continually open up and grant more and possibly concede more things just to get a grid in place, because those are the times we're in. Tend to agree. I tend to agree. I think we're in extraordinary times, and that's become um, a very recurrent theme with conversations with people at all sorts of levels. If you love the racing, let's get behind some kind of vision here, because uh, trying to keep this in the box, the performance box or the technology box, guys, that isn't working. Um, should it become a, a, a you know a hundred mile an hour run? What you brung? No. Uh, there needs to be some corners around it. But the re- at the end of the day, the market will prevail. And if you do allow two or three or four options within that uh, within that formula, within that rule set, the reality is one, maybe two of those are going to emerge as the, as the main players. Maybe that's what we need to do rather than putting literally all of the eggs we have in just the one basket. Let's go to our pal Nick Dovniak. He says, with BMW's endorsement of Class 1 DTM GT500-style regs being their vision of prototype race, and could we see this, or a sim- similar formula, replace LMP2 mm. once hypercar is established? That's an interesting one, Nick, because knowing that uh, Jens Marquardt and BMW were pitching Class 1 as hypercar, uh, something along those lines. But, yeah, interesting one is possibly a second-tier prototype-ish type option. What do you think, Graham? Could that be a way to get a Mazda or some others maybe back to uh, Le Mans on a lower cost? Uh, thanks for the question. It's certainly not something I considered. The, 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 the key thing to understand here is exactly what Jens was actually saying. He wasn't saying the current Class 1. He was saying next generation Class 1, probably with an off-the-shelf mild hybrid option attached to it. That was quite interesting because I was part of that, that huddle with uh, a number of other journalists, and it seemed to me that was a gap in what Jens was telling us, um, his logic against why they're probably not going to continue with GTE Pro didn't seem to um, didn't seem to kind of uh, come together with his logic about the future of prototype. So I did talk to him afterwards about that. It was in that that post conversation was the first point at which it became clear he wasn't just talking about the the powertrain. He was then talking about the whole package of class one and that has actually quite some uh, some credibility in terms of a move forward it's a, it's a known quantity there are currently five manufacturers involved with that two german manufacturers three japanese manufacturers some of which has got commonality across the current dpi brand it was then interesting to be involved in a second huddle this time with scott atherton where one of the journalists from the first huddle was directly poo-pooing that idea because these were, and I quote his words and not mine, touring car chassis. Mm. Well, they're touring car chassis (laughs) that are not a million miles different from current prototypes. And if you add in the kind of the tyre battle that's involved, add in in addition to that the potential for additional hybrid boost, and add in as well the fact that to accommodate not just the initial hypercar proposal, but also the road-going cars, we're talking about reeling in the performance, then actually you're in the window. And it wouldn't take very much to make sure, make darn sure you're in the window. Um, LMP2, 
probably not. I think it's got validity. It would be interesting to see whether or not that was something that, uh, you know, that was a, 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 a direction that maybe the ACO might like to go or indeed IMSA might like to go. That's a very interesting one indeed. But I think we've got to just give this time to breathe. Ms. Market is clearly doing it for a reason. Um, they've got an, an, an existing product. It means that they wouldn't have to put in the full investment to develop another product. Of course, you'd like to see that being the way that DPI 2 goes. Do I think that's likely? Probably not. But I think it's, uh, it has validity. That formed part of a private conversation I had later with Scott Atherton about the validity of the argument. Um, I think we've got some very interesting months and years to come as these regulations on both sides of the pond come together. I think people are going to have to start to make some very, very tough choices when faced with the reality that the odds of getting manufacturers to bring together eight and nine figure sums for a commitment to three, four, five year programs, those ages are ebbing very fast indeed. I think we've got one shot at it, and it better be the right one. Yeah, and I, I wasn't there for the latter scrum, but I think I know who the journalist was. And if they were trying to argue to Scott Atherton that the uh, Class 1 DTM and whatnot regs are used Turing car chassis, they're carbon fiber Good yep. lord, they're, these they're are full chassis. carbon, they're, they're prototype chassis. So, and also, if we just extend that mindless comment a little bit farther, um, the hypercars, many of the hypercars that could be entered in 2020 that stem from the road-based vehicles, uh, many of those chassis are carbon fiber. So, yeah, full carbon for lightweight and performance. So, Actual current hypercar, supercar manufacturers, many of them produce chassis that are made out of carbon fiber. The funny thing is, and with this hypercar formula that we hear about, the whole idea is to have something that is presented visually as something in the vein of a street hypercar or an extreme version of that thing. So... Yeah, but the technology beneath the carbon fiber body work, it's not going to be this pressed stamped thing coming out of Detroit or wherever else. It's going to be a high tech carbon fiber composite thing, unless there's some sort of rare exception that I can't that I can't think of right now. So anyways, those scrums are always fun. Um, let's move on, dear Graham, to uh, some more great questions for you. Uh, we had a, we've had a couple questions here, and I, I'll admit I don't understand the, the fascination, but that's great. I, I figure out the fascination of others on <laughs> pit, pit walls and garage setups uh, for the WEC teams. Um, John Meyer says the extra Sebring pit, other than it's in the U.S., any idea why they didn't use the tents as garages uh, opening mm-hmm. to a European-style pit lane? It could have been just like the uh, Austrian supercars at Melbourne F1 or DTM at the uh, Norris Ring, avoiding the silliness of having to get permission from race control to go to the garage. And uh, Tyler Kinghorn also says, why was there the decision made to go with a pit wall instead of European-style pit setup? The supercars run out of temporary setups with no wall at a lot of their races, so... Any ideas on that front? 
I've got a couple of ideas. I, I can say immediately I didn't uh, do the smart thing and actually ask. But um, my guess is uh, that a lot of this is to do with the circuit license. Um, I would say this, uh, and I don't know the circuit licensing that operates for V8 supercars, but I would offer just this one observation. Um, tents, even with some flame retardation, would tend not to have the flame retardant properties of concrete. And it might well be that because you've got fueling rigs next to them, that actually that was a defining factor, uh, that uh, you've got fuel rigs outside a solid building. That's somewhat different to potential for a fire uh, taking hold in temporary structures. I don't know, but that is my guess as to that. That might well be why that was involved in that way. And, you know, thinking about the, uh, the logistical challenges and for that matter, the cost of even uh, erecting hard temporary buildings um, in a brand new pit lane at, uh, at Sebring would have been significantly more. I'll say this much more, by the way. Um, I was um, spoken to by a number of teams in the lead up to Sebring about the cost of the temporary structures, the tents that were uh, that were offered for each of the teams in the WC paddock. I have to tell you that having seen what was offered, uh, those complaints all went away. They were delighted with the working conditions. I thought that the uh, the paddock looked neat and tidy. The pits too looked neat and tidy. Yes, the in and out of the paddock arrangement was slightly clunky, but no more so, for instance, than applies at Daytona. Um, so an unusual challenge or set of challenges for the teams, but not one that in any way was a defining uh, set of comments during or post the event. Uh, be interested to see what happens when people have the chance to kind of come back and review and particularly some of those teams that maybe had a few problems. But it was not an area that the WC teams were, were offering kind of private or indeed public comments about that being too much of a challenge. We're going to go to just one or two more uh, WEC, Aslam, ACO questions, then jump into some general and fun and bid farewell to our show here in about 20 minutes or so. I'll answer this one quickly from Anthony Ghosh, who says, why does the WEC race director need to declare a wet race before teams are allowed to use wet weather tires? Uh, it's actually a pretty standard procedure, Anthony, WEC, IndyCar, IMSA, so many series where it's... I guess the equivalent of the referee making an official call that dictates uh, the competition that's about to happen. So it might seem like a, a silly thing, but this is something, uh, granted, any team could put on wet weather tires if they wanted to in the dry for a race. It would be the dumbest thing ever. But in terms of this being an official wet race, that is just, again, it's a procedure set in most rule books that just simply says this is the official mechanism that says everyone can do this and this is at least uh, how we are going to start the race uh, because it is raining. So it removes the uh, – it also tends to remove a little bit of gamesmanship for some who might be thinking that we might try and get away with something or can we pull one over. So, again, it's just been, uh, I guess, a, a standard practice or methodology that I've seen, but it's certainly not not unique to the WEC. 
Let me go here to Ryan Terpstra for you, Graham, and it also blends a little bit with something our friend John Sable sent in. John was saying that he's really confused by uh, Hypercar and the LMP1 class now. You know, what is it going to look like, and would anybody uh, really and truly try and build a, a high-cost uh, DPI uh, or I'm sorry, car car, hypercar type thing when they might be able to get in and use a less expensive DPI uh, 2.0 if the uh, WC were to allow that. Uh, but let's go to Ryan Terps's question on this and maybe you can answer some of John's. He said, what did we learn about car car this weekend? Other than the fact that even potential drivers are on board with that name. Uh, <laughs> I was so surprised to see Anthony Davison just kind of get on board with calling it car car when we told him that's the dumb name we came up with. <laughs> Uh, there were exceptional performances, but by the way, you're absolutely right, Ryan. Felipe Nasro was exceptional. Um, I always think that in any class with any degree of specificity in it, that's when you see how people are complete are, are absolutely special. We certainly saw that from Felipe this time. We saw, um, I thought, an exceptional gentleman driver's performance uh, this time out. Uh, it came in the Jackie Chan DC racing team. And it came from David Heimer Hansen, who was duking it out with the pros in a car that he's not driven for over a year. He uh, raced with Rebellion in 2017, but has not been in a Gibson-powered um, Orica since. And boy, did he enjoy that. Jordan King, as one of the two um, debutants, I thought had a cracking uh, race as well. Uh, you just, I think, have to look at the at the the, the drivers that just emerged from the melee and uh, you know and do what they did in a, you know, a, a an eight hour race around an extremely challenging circuit uh, to see some of those performances. Um, let's make it clear where we are at the moment is Toyota most firmly are on board with the original hypercar regulations, and there appears beyond. Uh, some outliers, not to be very much by way of uh, manufacturer, uh, direct manufacturer interest, certainly in the in the year one for those regulations. Where the the confusion, if you want to put it that way, or the uh, the expansion, if you want to put it that way, comes is that there is a group of three manufacturers, I'll name those in a moment, that have directly lobbied for inclusion in the regulations of road-going hypercars or racing versions of derivatives of those cars to be included and encapsulated within those regulations those three are aston martin if you want to hear what david king from aston martin who's aston martin racing president has to say on that front uh, you can go to inside the sports car paddock this week because david uh, was good enough to give his time on that front from mclaren and i hope to catch up with our friends at mclaren in the coming days and find out what they've got to say and from Ferrari, uh, you've read about that on racer.com and on dailysportscar.com because we caught up with that prospect not that long ago. You would have to imagine that if you're going to directly lobby a rulemaking body to accommodate a given car and just for uh, for uh, for giggles here, it's not the McLaren Senna and it's not going to be the Ferrari LaFerrari, both of which by the time we get there will be older cars, but it will be the next iteration 
uh, of those uh, great manufacturers' hypercar offerings to the road. You would have to imagine that if you've gone to the trouble of lobbying, and you, particularly if you've gone to the trouble of sitting down with some of your biggest market, market competitors to make the case for that lobbying position, that you've got to at least have an inclination that that is something you're interested in taking up. All of the guidance I was being given is that there is the expectation from the rulemakers that in the coming weeks, coming very few weeks, there will be new draft regulations to show to those manufacturers. And in the shadow of those, that they expect there to be multiple announcements and commitments from manufacturers for the new regs. With what and in which season remains to be uh, remains to be seen. I think it's only when we know the answers to those questions that we'll know whether or not the reality of maybe whether or not uh, um, DPIs will be invited in year one uh, becomes a reality or rather just a plan B or even a plan C at this stage. What do I expect? I think I know which manufacturers are going to be stepping up early. Uh, and I think they've got a problem uh, with bridging from where we are now through to not just the 2020-2021 season, but for the following year, 21-22. Because I think that's when, uh, I think, oddly enough, I think we've said this before uh, on the Weekend Sports Cars MP. I think that's when you're going to see the true shape of this new class in whatever form it emerges. It's worrying, but actually it's also quite exciting. What's out there that we don't yet know about? I think Ferrari may come. I think uh, Aston Martin may be a reasonably early adopter. I think that uh, Tota are in come what may. Who else is out there that might actually decide to kind of step up and play on the global scene? That's, for me, the really interesting question. I'm going to take one here because I can answer it quickly and then throw you the final one from our visit down the uh, Weck Road. This comes in from Patrick Lindsay, not the race car driver, uh, who says, <clears throat> right now, if you had to put a percentage on it, what are the chances of 2.0 DPIs running for an overall win at Le Mans in 2022? I think, Patrick, it's very easy. Zero percent if the hypercar subscription, if the car count is good enough, I think any thoughts of trying to balance yet another type of prototype, one that is not uh, a WEC or ACO thing, I think there is no chance, uh, no chance in hell of that happening uh, if they have enough cars. If they don't, if hypercar is struggling to put numbers on the grid, I think we're probably looking at a 100% chance. So strictly a, if I need you, lover, come over. And if I don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm locking the door early. So I think it's 100% based on need compared to we just want you in general, no matter uh, what the numbers look like. I don't have a feeling that's the case. Let's go to the last question for you. Comes from our pal Right Turn Lover. Uh, regarding the strong Delara LMP2 pace shown last weekend at Sebring. And he says, has the Delara LMP2 just been running the wrong kind of tracks all along, or is driver Nick DeVries just this insanely quick? Uh, the latter. Uh, he is very quick indeed. Um, what can I say on this front? Not a lot yet. Uh, I hope by the time we get to the week in sports cars next week, or maybe the week after, I may have something I can bring you on this one. But uh, I think there's some interesting things going on at the moment from that to their Italian prototype maker. Um, interestingly, I thought the BR1 um, 
the LMP1 cars, particularly the S&P racing cars, looked absolutely dire uh, over the weekend. There were a number of occasions where uh, we, we were uh, looking at those cars closely for TV and standing next to Alan McNish, another man on the inside the sports car paddock this week, um, was wincing at the performance of the car over the bumps. Um, they need to unlock the code, but you look, MP, you know the Delara guys way better than I do. These are not people that sit in the haunches and wonder why things are going wrong. The guys who come up with solutions deliver something better. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to General, my friend, and uh, I'll let you uh, pick the first item. Let's go for this one, because it says it's for you, MP. The first time that uh, Douglas Holtzman from Facebook came across you was uh, an IMSS radio performance for the Rolex 24. You'd also go on to be part of the Le Mans coverage on speed. And if given the chance, would you participate in either of these now? Obviously now NBC for the insurance races with your duties covering the event. Does it present a distraction? Uh, well, thanks for asking, Doug. I will readily admit I was somewhat surprised that when NBC was announced as the new broadcaster for IMSA, that it was absolute crickets on this front. Uh, not only no interest, just, I mean, zero. Uh, so, yeah, that did surprise me a little bit. Now, granted, there are some amazing broadcasters. Uh, Jamie Howe, Brian Till, a few others. Uh, Justin Bell, Tommy Kendall, who would or should be placed way miles ahead of me on the potential broadcast employment queue. Maybe it's ego, I'm not sure what, but if I look at what NBC uh, Sports does in IndyCar, they employ my colleague Robin Miller. Now, Robin is just the veteran of veterans in IndyCar reporting. Amazing. I'm, he, it's perfect that they have him there. Would I love to be a part of that? Of course. I mean, IndyCar is my life too, but I mention Robin because he brings something that nobody else can, and that is he is an actual reporter. He is an actual person who spends his life in the paddock, getting the stories, knows the inside stuff, and they often use him in that capacity. What surprised me, again, with the NBC IMSA thing is, although I've been doing, had been doing uh, Indie Lights uh, with NBCSN for the past three years, uh, it was just on the fringes. So again, by not an employee of theirs or anything like that. So they owe me nothing. There's nothing expected from them. But it did occur to me, Doug, that having an actual reporter to provide some insights, to provide a different angle. And also as a former race engineer, team manager, there's a lot of things that I bring that absolutely nobody on the current lineup can bring. I would have thought looking at the Robin Miller model in IndyCar that someone might have said, huh, maybe we should have someone who knows the paddock better than anyone who reports about this every single day um, might be a valuable contributor to things. So not saying it will never happen. And I'm not saying I'd be the one they would choose. They might choose another person uh, that covers IMSA full-time. Who knows? Maybe it'll happen in the future. But I will say this. I'm a highly, highly competitive person. So that when those things, something like that doesn't happen, I say, great. That's just more fuel to try and produce more awesome content 
to make more <laughs> folks look at racer.com and roadandtrack.com and uh, make sure that they are getting what they absolutely cannot and do not have on the broadcast because, you know, again, I'm not saying there's nothing negative being spoken here, but uh, there's not a reporter among the bunch. Uh, therefore, they're not going to get that style or that quality of content. So uh, as for time, yeah, you know, we can make time. Uh, we certainly do make time and it all works out. Uh, it only helps my clients as well if the guy that's doing their reporting for them. As you well know, Graham, since you do this um, for multiple broadcast entities, it only helps raise a profile of the work that you do off camera or off radio. So anyways, uh, love what I do here, though. And it's funny. There's almost this podcast thing where we do this on a very regular basis and talk about stuff. And the cool thing is more and more people are listening. So, yeah, whether it's TV or just doing the good old podcast here, Doug, I'm in a pretty good place. Yeah, I, I um, it would be great to see and hear more of you uh, on the broadcast we see from these races, MP. But uh, I agree with you. Uh, any opportunity to actually get under the skin and explain it as we get the opportunity to do with the weekend sports cars. It's been an absolute eye opener to me, the level of engagement that you guys seek and get from both of us and through us with uh, lots and lots of people in all sorts of paddocks. Um, Let's have a quick look. One I can answer really quickly. This is from... I've lost it again. Oh, Robin Crickman. Curious why race teams didn't choose to house team uh, owners... Sorry, team owners, team members in RVs at Sebring, where nice local hotels are in short supply. Noise, noise, and indeed noise. And in fact, this came up with uh, conversations with the two Porsche teams, uh, GTLM team and GTE Pro teams, which uh, they told us that they'd actually moved the GTE Pro guys away from the track uh, to, to actually reduce the disturbance that they would get uh, with the IMSA cars on track so they could get rested before the WC race. It would be difficult to explain just what, as we said a little earlier in the show, just what a kind of degrading effect that can actually have on your effectiveness. Um, so RVs, no matter how well insulated, are not going to get rid of that sort of noise, particularly if you've got them parked inside the circuits. So it is going to be absolutely to, to do with the noise. You spotted anything here, MP? Yeah, and I think we are going to have, well, we probably have already had WEC teams booking their hotels uh, <laughs> you know friday night or, or i should say saturday morning at 12:01 a.m from what i understand there's been a fairly standard practice of folks at the wec going in booking large large blocks of hotels which then teams uh use not for free obviously but at least the uh the series or some folks affiliated with the series uh, have been going in and you know whether it's china you name it uh here's big blocks of hotels teams then uh pay and rent those uh, hotel rooms from what i understand there was a late attempt uh to do that by the wec and found out that not only were uh rooms and little condos and lodges all snapped up but uh, some of the more forceful attempts to say, but we are a big team, a big organization and coming in fell on deaf ears uh, once folks learned that indeed <laughs> uh, a lot of the places that the WC was looking to rent uh, happened to be owned by the France family. And uh, so I think 
whether I don't think the waiting on the WEC to lock out local blocks and Sebring is going to be another thing, even though it hasn't been announced uh, for 2020 yet. Again, I'm fairly certain, Graham, that for those that had suboptimal options, they've already gone and booked hotels much yep. closer to the track now. It's what everybody would hopefully do or has been doing. So I think that's that. Um, let me grab... when, when you when you when you say owned by the Franz family, isn't that just Florida? Well, that's very true. Uh, so yes, if you have any uh, maintenance issues, just be sure to send those in in the state of Florida, uh, courtesy of the France family. Let me throw this general one at you because it would help me learn because it's not that far away. This comes in from our pal Jordan Hopwood, who says, in addition to the Park Place team, what other GTD teams might we see showing up for the California eight hours here at my local WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca in what, nine days or so? Uh, it is about nine days or so, isn't it? I think we get the uh, the entry list in the next couple of days for that. And I'll have to tell you, there's an awful lot of stuff still up in the air there. Um, it's pretty early in the year. Uh, I, I genuinely don't know. We've got a number of the European teams that, can, uh, that are actually committing to, uh, to racing at the California eight hours. That's going to be good fun. Uh, but I have to tell you, um, whilst I'm putting together my plans for the rest of the IGTC, and I can tell you I'll be at three of the remaining four races, I will not, I'm afraid, be at Laguna Seca. Delighted to say, and I hope he's listening, that uh, our pal Ryan Kish will be there. Uh, but I'm, I've not got my eyes set on exactly what people who turn up at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca are going to see on that grid. I'm sure it will be of very high quality, and I'm sure the racing will be excellent because GT3 racing tends to be, by its very nature, pretty well balanced. The SRO have got the handle on that that but no i'm afraid i can't at the moment tell you exactly who from the uh, gtd paddock is going to be there seem to recall right motorsport will be re representing the porsche factory remember there are a number of factory uh, factories entered for the igtc intercontinental gt challenge but that doesn't necessarily mean and in most cases means doesn't mean that you're going to see the same teams at each of the remaining races laguna seca followed by uh, followed by spa and kailami and suzuka and yes i'll be at those three but not i'm afraid in the great states of california I want to see a nine car Donkervort factory effort. As long I've as I have that, I, I am there. Granted, it's only a ninety minute drive. I, I did I did see a Donkervort factory effort, GT four <laughs> back in the day, uh, back in the day at Spa, and those things had been battered by the ugly stick. Uh all right. So we are now I think officially in overtime. I've highlighted two questions to close. And I'll uh, one from Jonathan Wu, and then the the final one from my <laughs> pal Vincent, uh, Jonathan Wu. And thanks for sending this in because you know sports car racing can be a very inside baseball thing, and at times some of the references I know I'm sure can be frustrating if you aren't in on the joke or the whatever. Jonathan says, please explain to the young and new sports car fans why. Christoph Bouchou is a racing legend. And although he didn't put legend in brackets, I'll put the little bunny ear brackets around legend. Yep, yep. Uh, Jonathan goes on to say, Google and Wikipedia only give me normal stuff, not the behind the scenes <laughs> fun stuff. So, okay. 
Uh, Do you want me to start this one? Yes. Uh, Okay, Christoph, and he would mind me saying this, um, has an on-track and at times, most times, off-track personality and persona, which can be best described as challenging in every single meaning of the word. Uh, He is... We try not to curse here. We we try to make this as family-friendly as possible. So if you have small children, even if you have adult children, and you just don't want them to hear a curse word, this is a time to uh, do the earmuffs and cover your ears. Bushu's an asshole, Jonathan, <laughs> of the highest order. If it, You know how, if we're talking martial arts, black belt, right? There's levels of belts, white belt, blue. You work your way up, brown belt. You work your way up. He's like a fifth level black belt asshole. The, and just personality-wise, even more, though, the reason he is the butt of Joe, and I'm going to pass this right back to you, Graham, but the reason he is the constant source of citation on this show and just humor is because, to my knowledge, in the world of non-Formula One, non-NASCAR, leaving everything else open, even MotoGP, I believe he is the most hated driver among all other drivers, the one that if you're running dead last and there's no chance of a result and you see Bushu going by in something and you won't get fired by your team, you'll just stove into the side of the car to take him out because he is such, again, <laughs> muffs moment, such an asshole. Back to you, Mr. Goodman. Uh, I'll give you, give you, there are two stories I could tell, one I won't because this is, relatively speaking, a family show and one of the words that inevitably comes out in this is completely unacceptable for any broadcast, even if adults. Uh, and that, by the way, is his racing nickname from his long-term compatriot, uh, Jean-Marc Gounon, who calls him an uh, un- unspeakable uh, name. But um, the best I could give you in terms of Christoph's demeanor comes courtesy of another good friend in racing. Uh, this was Bob Berridge, uh, at the time, I believe, was driving his LMP1 Lola. And I think this was in testing. And I seem to recall this as being Monza. And there was some kind of on-track incident, um, which led to contact or near contact out on the circuit. Mr. Bushu was unhappy about this incident and came from one end of the pit lane to the other, carrying a lump hammer. Yes, a lump hammer. Um, now, you then get into the, uh, the, the visual treat that is Christoph Bushu, all of about five foot four, um, and Bob Berridge, all of about nine foot three, uh, and Bob looking down at Christoph and offering him the opportunity, vocally and in Anglo Saxon terms, to remove himself from this situation and after some, uh, some consideration, he did so. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go with Assel. Yeah. And this is, again, I've never been on track with a guy. I've only ever interviewed him, but I've watched him on track. And I have many friends who've raced with him on track. And some of those friends are Indy 500 winners, are sports car champions, IndyCar champions, like truly legendary figures for all the right reasons. And their feedback of just the guy could be five laps down and he won't let you by. He's going to block you. He's going to hit you. He, anything pos- anything he can do in a positive fashion to create a negative outcome for you, the guy's going to do. 
uh, it, it's it's kind of a battering ram bull in a china shop approach to motor racing. Now he is super quick. No one's ever argued about his pace or competence in setting individual fast laps, but the manner in which he interacts since motor racing is rarely a single car on track for a four, 10, 12 or 24 hour race, the manner in which he re- interacts and behaves with other drivers. That's where the legend of Christoph Bouchou, we're doing the bunny ears. The legend of Christoph Bouchou is formed just someone that you don't ever want to find yourself in a truly competitive situation against. If you're going, he's leading and you're second or vice versa. It's, it's almost a guarantee you're going to be straggling back to the pits with bodywork hanging off, a wheel missing. Who knows what? But there's just going to be battery involved at some point. And, but it's the same behavior. So if there's a positive, you could say it's linea- he's linear. Whether he's fighting you for the lead or 20 laps down, he's going to be just as big of a bunny ears asshole. And so it's because of that we're just listening to the other drivers talk about this, just see their their eyes turn red with rage years after they last maybe raced against the guy. You go, wow, he really got to you. And then you start hearing the story. So we've we've threatened to do an all Christoph Bushu story show. We need to make it happen. We really <laughs> We need to find you need to find Jean Marc Gounon. And that shouldn't be difficult. Jules Gounon, his son of course, uh, very active out there in GT three world. He might well be, might well be um at Laguna Seca this weekend, Jean Marc Gounon. Now here's here's a question for you, MP, because I'm I'm not up to speed with the the wise wherefores and maybes here. I can tell you in French what Jean-Marc Gounon calls Christophe Bouchou, but I'm not sure whether or not that's acceptable because it does include a word that is totally unacceptable in English. Well, you go for it, and if I need to insert a bleep, I will. (laughs) Uh, By the way, if any of you do uh, bump into me at uh, any of the circuits, I'll happily tell you what he calls him to his face. Uh, And the uh, in French it is la chatte qui est uh, rapide. La chatte. Not spelt like cat. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. So, yeah. So, uh, acknowledge, so hopefully... acknowledges, his, acknowledges his speed, but does offer um, a comment upon his character, which literally could not be worse. I also love the fact to close, Jonathan, that what was his, I believe, most tenured employer towards the end of his career? <laughs> This level five team owner, <laughs> Scott Tucker. I mean, it's just these things write themselves. I mean, you could not you could not make it up. Let's close on this, Graham, and, and thank you for indulging us on a little bit of overtime here. This comes in from our pal Vincent, uh, good old Vincent, who says, How is the vibe at Sebring? And does the new victory lane take away from the traditional celebration under the tower as someone who has spent many, 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 many years of his life at Sebring, I'd love for you to take this and answer as our final question. As someone who has not been there as often, but at least has been there enough to gauge uh, how the Super Sebring fared compared to just a standard IMSA weekend. 
Well, remember, two different uh, places for podiums. And I have to say, I didn't go to the IMSA podium. I was otherwise engaged. I definitely was at the WC podium because I called it. For the first time in five years, was asked um, to call the, uh, the WC podium and was delighted to see a very goodly number of enthusiastic fans there in the tipping pouring rain. Uh, I had a, uh, an umbrella that the guys there didn't. And it was a really good um you know good vibe to it uh, a long way away of course from the campsite so i reckon we must have had two or three hundred people there in the tipping rain next to uh, where the tech inspections were done but that was really good as for whether or not the new imsa arrangement uh, is is you know equal to the fantastic scenes we used to see beneath the tower i think this is year two or year three uh, for the new victory lane I genuinely couldn't tell you from experience because I've not yet seen it. Didn't see it last year when I came back after two or three years away and didn't see it this year because I was too busy going and collecting um, comment from elsewhere. But all I could say is this. With the crowd that you get at Sebring International Raceway, with the spirit that the the, the the fans have got, frankly, you could put it in a truck stop 15 miles away and there's still party. Um, I, I think that is less of a defining factor than everything I saw to do with that race meeting. That was an awesome race meeting. That was an awesome race meeting that deserves to stay on the calendar for many, many years. And I just hope that IMSA, WC and the ACO can keep it together uh, Make the odd tweak, yes. And yes, Marshall, put some solid walls and soundproofing into the press room because I, for one, will be an early adopter and I'll be there back there whether I'm on, or not I feature on the WCTV or not. I'll be there. Daily Sports Car will be there. I'm sure you'll be there. And sure as heck, the Weekend Sports Cars will be there. Amen to that, my friend. This has been a fun episode, although I do prefer doing these in person and seeing who we can catch. So uh, hopefully we can do more of that this year. But for this week and this week's Weekend Sports Cars, I'm Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin of DailySportsCar.com. Thank you to you for listening and all of the awesome questions that came in. And also thank you to our patrons at the Justice Brothers and also Cooper Tires for making this possible. We will speak to you next week.